Smith, and this is more than one lesson. Thank you for listening. Uh, week two of Halloween times. I hope everybody uh, uh, can crawl out from under their covers because uh, I'm sure they're terrified at our Death Note discussion. Um, Death Note not really being a horror movie, but it's a little bit macabre. But uh, but today we're going to talk about another film that isn't really a horror film, but definitely has a lot of horror imagery in it. Um, and I guess we can we can even debate whether or not it uh, is a horror film. I think some people uh, could say that it is. Um, and in my book, Worth Watching, my, I put my review in the horror film section, so I guess I do consider it that. But, uh, but before we get there, I did want to let everyone know that this episode is brought to by Faith Life TV, which is a new streaming service uh, that features documentaries, uh, lectures, and then just general uh, biblical resources, along with uh, narrative films as well. Um, so you can get your free month of Faith Life TV if you go to morethanonelesson.com, and there will be a link right there on the right-hand side of the page. Click on that, and you get your first month free. After that, it's $4.99 a month. Uh, and then I did want to say there's a new uh, there's a new film available called An Ordinary Hero. I'll give a, a bit a bit of a description here. An Ordinary Hero is the amazing story of one young woman's courage to help change the world. As a little girl, as a little girl growing up in the South, Joan Trumpauer Mulholland, which is a name that yes, I recognize it sounds fake, but it isn't, uh, witnessed the ugly realities of segregation and racism firsthand and vowed to one day do something about it. By the time she was 19 years old, Joan had already participated in over three dozen sit-ins and protests when she was put on death row in Mississippi's notorious Parchman Penitentiary after joining the Freedom Ride. Freedom Rides? Maybe, maybe Freedom Riders. But that was just the beginning of an incredible true story that has captivated millions around the world. Now, uh, as you and I were, we were talking off mic very briefly, and you said, why is she on death row? I don't actually know. Um, you'll have to go to Faith Life TV. Uh, don't forget to get your free month and check out An Ordinary Hero to find out. That's what you should do, Josh. I guess I haven't introduced you yet. No, no one knows who you're talking to right now. Uh, right. I was talking to me, and I, and I was wondering aloud to myself, like a crazy person. <laughs> like uh, you do. No. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not here by myself. There's at least half a person here with me. It's Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Pretty good. Happy Halloween time. Well, thank you, uh, listeners. Listen. Okay, here's the deal, listeners. For whatever reason, on the day that we're recording, uh, my neighbors have decided they really just want to drive their terrible cars and their terrible motorcycles up and down the street and let everybody know that they're very, very masculine. Uh, <laughs> yes, I recognize that I sound uh, like a wimp in saying something like that, but it bothers me so much and we can't stop every time they go by so you might hear the occasional rumbling engine and say like oh did tyler decide to record a on a nascar course i did not it's just <laughs> chase street in the, north hills the nascar court came to you course. exactly course that's Co not they're not called courses it's like a track or something track yes 
It's like an obstacle course, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's just the other cars. They're um, the obstacles? Yeah. Oh. And you have a choice of what you do. You can go around them. You can go okay. through them. <laughs> that one's not super hmm. advisable. Um, but yeah, and so uh, so listeners, Halloween times, in case you didn't know, is uh, it's for the month of October, we talk about movies that are horrific or just straight up horror or just generally macabre. They deal with some of the darker elements of humanity and they engage in some often some gross imagery that'll certainly be the case today. Uh, and, uh, we call it Halloween times, which came about because of you, you, Josh came up with that, ter- that term. I don't remember how, I think you just happened to throw it out someday. Probably. And, uh, we thought like, Oh, that's a, yeah, we can brand that. <laughs> um, which is, I've, I've literally said that in sincerity at one point. I don't think I said it then, but I remember mm-hmm. I had, heard, somebody had said something on the show and I remember being like, Oh yeah, we can brand that. And I thought, Oh, what have I become? I'm such a corporate stooge. You become a real podcaster. It's, boy, yeah, that's probably true. Um, so, uh, so today we're going to be talking about Nicholas Winding Refn's The Neon Demon, a film that was in my top 10 last year. Mm-hmm. I did not expect to... I thought I would like it. Uh, I did not expect to love it. And yeah. I do love it, despite it having a pretty dumb script in a lot of ways. But Nicholas Winding Refn has never been about his scripts, as evidenced by the fact that he seemed that previously he tried to downplay dialogue as much as possible. Um, but I, what I will say is, so Nicholas Winding Refn has made, recently he's made Drive. Um, he has made uh, Only God Forgives. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made that film. Oh, what's the one with Mads Mikkelsen? Uh, Valhalla Rising. Valhalla Rising. Um, so, and he's he's definitely uh, gaining prominence. Uh, but there are some people who don't really care for the the way he he makes movies. Mm-hmm. Um, finding him maybe a little bit pretentious. I don't know if I would go that far, but I know I'm not a huge fan of his, um, which is why. Uh, the Neon Demon being in my top ten surprised me, mm-hmm. but um, but I know you're a big fan of his, and I know you you also really liked Only God Forgives. Yeah. Um, so what is Josh? What's so great about this Reffin guy? What's the deal? Um, I don't know. I think I think he has a really unique visual style. I think that's that's the main thing that I like about him. Um, he all of his movies, he's creating this tone and this look that. Uh, always add a lot to whatever's happening, even if not that much is happening. Yeah. Um, so I feel like they're, I, I like, I like to look at these movies, even if I don't really care what they're about so much. Yeah. Um, which was definitely the case with only God forgives. Cause that, I feel like that script is 20 pages long. Like there's nothing probably there's very little happening in that movie. Maybe it's just a series of uh, periods. Like for, uh, that's how they got the page count. And it's just like, Oh, this is nothing but periods. Like, yeah, the character is just kind of staring. Um, yeah. And then it's, it's also one of those ones that ends so abruptly. You're like, Oh, and then you're like, well, I guess there wasn't really anything else that could happen, but yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. Drive is probably about as mainstream as he can get. Probably. I mean, I could definitely see him directing. Like, I always thought it would be super awesome if he directed a RoboCop. Huh. Like, I feel like that look and feel would be great. Um, he, I, you know what? That's interesting. I do see him as kind of in the same vein as a Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. Makes kind of trashy things, but 
embraces it and makes them makes the best trash you could ever see. Yeah. And like he, he definitely has a, a, a little bit of an eighties throwback. Sure. Quality to the tones. He uses a lot like neon color is a pretty normal thing yeah. for him. It's kind of, it's been a big yeah. part of a lot of his films going back a ways actually yeah. even, um, uh, he did a series of films in Denmark, which is where he's from, called the Pusher films. Right. They remade one of them in the U.S., which, which he, I saw. He executive produced that. I don't yeah. think he directed, but yeah. it's pretty good. I've heard it's okay. Um, the first one feels like an indie film, but the second one is the first one because I, I tried to watch some of his earlier stuff, and the second one was the first one where you start to see that yeah. kind of distinctive look, and you see him finding ways to incorporate like. Uh, He's doing sort of the chiaroscuro thing with darkness and neon light. Mm -hmm. And that's now just a regular thing that kind of shows up in pretty much all of his movies. Would you describe his aesthetic in, in not completely obviously, but, um, and I'm going to use a word that is often seen as negative Mm -hmm. garish. Would you say that there's a garish quality to the way, certainly the way he uses color, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, the the way he composes shots is very deliberate and meditative and yeah but to mix that with kind of these bright pops of color and especially neon Mm -hmm. um i feel like the two they would seem like they wouldn't go together but i think they do um but yeah i feel like there's a i feel like he steers into the into the garishness but maybe that's not the right word it could be i don't know like there's uh there's definitely something kind of dramatic, big and dramatic about it. Um, I feel like because everything else seems so subdued, mm-hmm. uh, from the performances to the pacing to like the uh, the tight like the movement in the shots, or rather the lack thereof. Mostly, mm-hmm. I feel like there's not a whole lot of movement. Um, so it could be that those things kind of balance out. So he has yeah. these, these sort of big heightened elements and then balances those with, uh, kind of a, a Scandinavian slowness and, uh, subtlety, which, uh, I think that's the same reason that the violence in his films works out so well. Cause there is a good bit of violence in a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and, and not merely violence. There's a, gore element to, oh, yeah, to his definitely. films as well. Uh, his, his, uh, he has one of the only films that my wife had to go into the other room because she could hear what was happening. Mm. <laughs> Just the, the sound of it. Uh, the other one being green room. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Which he might have not, seen, which he yeah, did yeah. not make. Right, right. But yeah. Yeah. The other film that, that, uh, was that effect. But yeah, um, the gore is, is, extreme at times yeah uh, which is another paul verhoeven uh overlap i yeah, would say totally hmm yeah he's he's definitely even if i don't care for his films um he's not a filmmaker i can ignore like he's doing very interesting things and he's doing things his own way and that's a thing i can and i never hate his movies and there are yeah. often entire elements of them. I mean, visually, obviously, uh, that I uh, absolutely adore. Um, you know, I didn't find drive that narratively satisfying, but I question whether or not he cared that much about the narrative satisfaction so much as setting a tone. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then uh, but he does craft interesting characters as well, particularly supporting characters mm-hmm. like in drive. I think Albert Brooks, I love the Albert Brooks uh, character know, in there. Good character, great performance. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris and Scott Thomas and only God forgives. Yeah. And then any number of characters in the neon demon, I think mm-hmm. are, are very interestingly, uh, uh, presented. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and I'm definitely in the minority on, on drive. I do think that, that certain critics just kind of ran out of patience when it came to <laughs> only God forgives. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but drive. Yeah. Everybody just like really responded to it. Said like, Oh, it's like one of the best movies of the year. If not the best movie of the year, I think that was 2011. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's certainly, I mean, it's a film I own. I have watched it a couple of times. It's just not a film I abs- I, that I love. It, my wife loves it. She thinks, oh, she really? thinks it's great. Um, <laughs> my but wife I, does not like it. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, I, I think he's definitely a divisive filmmaker. I yeah. seem to, there seem to be a lot of people who either love or hate him. Um, which I can understand because if what you enjoy out of a movie is, uh, a lot of emotional depth, right? There's, there's usually not a lot in his films. Yeah. Um, and, but if you're somebody who really likes just the aesthetics and look and feel, you, you might gravitate more towards him. I'll say this. Um, I, it's not that I have a hard time distinguishing, but if I, if I think about Nicholas winding Refn, I do find my mind, immediately pairing him with Denis Villeneuve. Um, no, Denis Villeneuve like is actually, I think a very humanistic director. Mm-hmm. I think he really, you will get a lot of emotion in his films. Maybe yeah. not necessarily a film like Blade Runner, but you know, arrival prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, but tonally, and I think from a composition standpoint, I think they are very, very similar. And it's interesting I'm, that they came about sort of at the same time. Yeah, I think so. I think there's, um, they have some very like, similar kind of dark, elements in the the way that they uh in in the looks that they create for their films yeah and and both of them have a little bit of the uh again the 80s thing yeah definitely in blade runner that's in my head because i saw it last night yeah but uh like if you had putting aside script or anything like that if you had if someone told you that Nicholas Winning Refn had directed Blade Runner 2049, would you believe it? I, I wouldn't be shocked. Not at all. <laughs> Especially because that, that again, incorporates a lot of the neon and stuff like that. And I think that's Villeneuve uh, uh, working to recreate the world of yes. the original Blade Runner film, which which looked that way. But, um, but yeah. I, I always feel like, in my head, I compare, uh, or I, I, I pair reffing with Kubrick a little bit. Sure. Um, for some of the same reasons that, and, and a lot of people don't like who don't like Kubrick dislike him for the same reasons that he's kind of cold and, and, uh, dispassionate, but, um, you know, visually stunning usually. Yeah. Um, so, Oh, go ahead. I was trying to think I, I could, uh, if it hadn't been as recent as it was, I could totally see, Nicholas Winding doing a, a remake or reboot or something of uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Sure, you see I can see that. Yeah, um, and then I myself, uh, you know, talking about Denis Villeneuve and Blade Runner, like um, that gets me to Ridley Scott, and I do feel like as I as I think I've I've said in the past, um, I did a fantasy casting for like an, an Alien remake, and I think I had. 
I believe I had Nicholas Winding Refn directing it. Um, that would certainly, he would probably do the gore very well. Uh-huh. Um, but also there's, again, there's such a deliberate quality to his filmmaking. And let me ask you this, and we can, we can start getting into the neon demon in a moment, but in talking about Refn, do you think, is it good, bad, or neutral that in talking about him, we cannot help but talk about other filmmakers. Like we are put in mind of other filmmakers, whether they be past or present. That could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Um, I don't really think it's a bad thing. I, I think, I think the reason where we feel compelled to do that is because he, uh, because as an auteur filmmaker, he has a very distinctive look and style and we kind of are looking for things that, that seem that way or other things that, yeah. So we can put it in some kind of context. And I think it's arguable that at this point, film has been around for a hundred years and a lot. And it, and I think it's fair to say that anybody that has become a a, a director in the last probably 20 years, and even then probably 40 or 50 years, they were probably raised on film Yeah, and we are now, and you find this with a lot of horror, like it follows and the guest, which also has like neon mm-hmm. and an eighties quality. And I think when you look at, at somebody like a uh, JJ Abrams, we're now getting a generation of directors that were raised on eighties culture mm-hmm. and movies. And I think it's starting to really reflect in various genre, uh, and in various, um, uh, I get, yeah, just, just, uh, just genres. And there are just a lot of, a lot of directors that are trying to do that. And there are even others that I can't remember at the moment, but I, I remember recently cause Jen said, I'm getting an eighties vibe from a lot of movies right now. And I said, yeah, it's just, uh, I guess you'll see that like in the seventies, you know, you had George Lucas, Coppola, Spielberg, Scorsese, and when you think of the movies that they're responsible for, a lot of those are throwbacks to movies from the 1930s, whether they be gangster movies or like these uh, space opera serials and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. like whatever the new generation is doing, look back about 20 or 30 years <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing now. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the reason, so I, I mentioned earlier that people consider Refn pretentious. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't think applies, but an argument could be made because something you said and something that I would agree with is that he makes all, he makes these movies that just look so beautiful and they seem to be about something. And I'm sure if you were to ask him, he'd said they, they are about something, but he seems to lead with style, which I don't have a problem with, but the style is composed in such a way that you would assume there is something underneath it and there might not actually be. And so literally you could say that he is pretentious. He is setting up, he's creating a pretense that there's more going on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't like to use that term partially because it's, it's pejorative. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would just say that he is a guy who's more concerned with style than theme or substance, even though his films do have them. But what I will say is that one of the reasons that I love the neon demon is I feel like the story he was telling finally caught up to his style Hmm. because he is telling a story all about beauty 
and I would say a certain emptiness in that beauty. Mm-hmm. Well, that's his. The, the, that's his films. They're absolutely beautiful. I'm not. It's mean to say they're empty, but like such an emphasis on visual. Um, and he is, and we're talking about like the modeling, uh, industry where it's very, there's a, a, a vapid there quality to it. There's a sting to it. And, and there's a lot of artifice and affectation and just, and it's just so, so beautiful. And I feel like in a way it was only a matter of time before he arrived at making a movie about this industry. Um, and it just felt by the time the film was over, I felt like in its own way, like, well, this is the definitive modeling movie, right? <laughs> Obviously. Uh, I'm sure any number of models would watch this movie and say, you're a monster for saying that about my industry. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I just feel like he, he captures something, uh, very specific. And in doing so in leaning so much into the style, into style on this film, because of the stories he's telling, I think he winds up making stronger points, than he would if he had decided to tone it down and play up the substance. Like, mm. because in a, in this industry and in this movie, the style is the substance. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was my thinking. And maybe even that's a little bit pretentious on my part to bend over backwards for talking about why I like this beautiful trash. Um, <laughs> I don't, I say trash, not, I, at this point, trash can be like an artistic, uh, expression. Like, yeah, when you look at certain types of movies in the seventies, it's, it's often related with horror, but not necessarily. And it's just when people say, Oh, that like a movie is trashy, they mean there's like a base quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it sort of revels in it. And yeah. I do think that, uh, neon demon, it's beautiful, but it, I think there's a, <laughs> you could also say schlock, but I think trash is probably the way to say it. It's like the cleanest trash you can imagine. Absolutely. <laughs> it is pristine. They managed, uh, I'm not going to use that term cause I don't like <laughs> it. Never mind. Um, but, uh, what would you say? Um, you know, and it's, this is a, a big question. What did you, cause you also really like the neon. Yeah. Game. I liked it a lot. Um, what did you, what did you like about it? So mu- what did you like so much about it in, in the broad terms at the moment? Um, again, I, I like that style. So like yeah. the look that he creates. So I'm, I like almost every one of his films for that reason. Um, I think, uh, I, I liked that. And, and his newer film or his more recent films have been good at this at kind of building a sense of dread throughout. Yeah. Um, even from the start, this movie has some kind of grim foreshadowing stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it just sort of, there's something about it playing in or, or, or depicting people playing around the concept of murder. Yeah. Uh, when that will become uh, something real to them right later. Um, and the idea of mixing violence and beauty together in that way. Yeah. Um, cause for any, you know, for anybody who's wondering what I'm talking about again, probably want to see the film before we talk about it. But, right. uh, the it opens with a uh, a photo shoot where the lead character played by Dakota Fanning, no, Fanning. Dakota, Elle Fanning um 
looks like she's been murdered. It looks like her throat slit or whatever. Yeah, and she's just lying on this couch, and her eyes are just like just open, not blinking, and the camera just slowly is is pulling back, and it's beautiful, and it's very or it's very again. I'm going to use the word deliberate a lot. Mm-hmm. Very deliberately staged, like the blood looks exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a very disturbing image Yeah, to start but the film with. Certainly that's the first image of the film, but it's also a, you know, within the plot of the film, it's a like glamor photo shoot. Yeah. So the fact that they're taking grisly images and using that as glamor yeah. is, uh, I don't know. So th- there's a lot of things that he does like that. That's visual, visual imagery, which even if it doesn't necessarily point to a plot thing, mm-hmm. um, I, I think strengthens the idea within the film. Yeah. So when he does those kind of things, well, that's the sort of thing that steers me away from the, the, uh, criticism that his stuff is empty, which you hear a lot. Yeah. Um, cause I don't, I don't think that is, I don't I don't think that is empty. Maybe it doesn't contribute to a plot. And I think that's sometimes what people mean. Like nothing happens. Yeah, which, it, which is not a, a a criticism that I ever enjoy uh, or or appreciate because I just feel like it's it's inherently dismissive. Yeah, it's like nothing happens. Like, well, maybe nothing, maybe quote unquote nothing happens in regards to like a story. Maybe it's not plot heavy, but from mm-hmm. a character standpoint, a lot is happening, even if it's very small. And I will say that in in regards to the scene that you're talking about, which is you know this beautiful violence or gore. Um, I did just have this thought about, uh, especially a film like this, you know, I would not say that Nicholas winning Refn is big into body horror, although there's even a little bit of that in this, in this film towards the end. Um, but I think he is fascinated with the body and I think the frailty of the body, especially when you look at stuff like Valhalla rising or, Mm -hmm. or really any of his films, you know, characters get, disemboweled they get their hands cut off like there's some pretty rough stuff and i think he is if i said preoccupation that sounds negative i think it's just something he's interested in is the way the body works and how easily it can be hurt and so he is so i feel like it is a crucial part of this film because he is showing beautiful bodies getting hurt and Mm -hmm. maimed and um and yeah, it just really, uh, and that's something I just thought of is like just how crucial the violence and the gore and the blood is to this film specifically. Um, but, uh, so to, to move on very briefly as, uh, you know, listeners, I'm sure you've seen the film by this point, but, um, but it's about this, uh, young woman, uh, Jess, um, or Jesse, I don't remember. I think it's just Jess. Um, but she, she comes to, to Hollywood. She comes to Los Angeles with, with dreams of becoming a model. And she seems very naive at first, but there is definitely, there's definitely a, a, not a world. She, I think she's pretty shrewd in a lot of ways. And I think she understands how the business works. And I think she's very ambitious and whatever naivete she has seems to be uh, an affectation to disarm people. And so she Mm -hmm. gets, so she gets pulled into this industry and there's something that I like because the story would be that as she gets pulled in, the industry changes her. Mm -hmm. 
I think an argument could be made that she's already there and the industry just allows it to come out. Uh, but would you say that? Is... Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I think it encourages something in her. Yeah. Um, that. I don't know if he, he would believe that that's in everybody. I, I don't know if that's part of the idea, but it's definitely, I don't know. I mean, he may just be using her as an example of somebody who, uh, I don't know. She represents a lot of things because she represents yeah. pride in, in, in a lot of points, but yeah. there are a lot of times when she represents beauty itself. Right. And possibly art to some degree through that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I don't know. And I think there's definitely uh, I'm not sure if I'd say she represents this, but it's definitely a part of who she is as a character. There is a sort of quiet desperation underneath uh, that she is that she's hiding. She needs to convey a certain confidence. Um, I guess that's the thing is, you know, again, we're, we're talking about a, uh, an industry that is primarily visual uh, and it encourages poise or just some, you know, there's a lot of acting that goes into modeling. And I say that as someone who obviously I've never modeled, but I do know a lot of actors that have done modeling and they just say like, you kind of have to go into character to capture the, the vibe that the photographer wants. Mm. And, um, and I think I love Al Fanning's performance because she does, she does represent a lot of things, but I don't think she ever plays the character as simply a representation of things. I think she does no. craft a full character. I think she does have an arc, yeah. but I think the arc is not what one would assume, which is like the corruption of this young girl uh, who didn't know any better. I think mm -hmm. she goes in with her eyes pretty open uh, about what this industry is and what she's willing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just nurtures and encourages this instinct inside of her until, until she starts to dictate to the industry a little bit, how things are going to go. Right. Um, which I found interesting. You, you can make the argument that what she really wants is that power that she eventually yeah. gets. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, you know, it, I think it's arguable and this is where I, I don't know about the industry, but I guess you do hear about super, you know, supermodels, and there are some that you just get to know precisely because they're models. Like, you know, we're, I'm going to, I'm going to date both of us here. <laughs> uh, somebody like a Cindy Crawford, uh, who was famous for being a model. I mean, she acted in one or two things, but by that time they were simply trying to capitalize on her fame. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and somebody like a Kathy Ireland actually did act in a couple of notable, uh, films. And so, um, so I don't know how much power a single model can have in the industry, but I guess, I guess it's not unheard of that. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm the famous one. So even though you're taking the photos, I'm going to tell, I'm, I'm going to tell you, uh, how this is going to go. Um, and I think we, I don't think the character of Jess is there yet, but you also know that if, if things do not take the turn that they do, the very unexpected turn, mm -hmm. um, that she would be that she would be this, this giant figure in this, uh, industry and probably shapes it to what she wants it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I do love, uh, Elle Fanning's performance, but I think all the performances are great. Um, I, wanted to specifically call out uh jenna malone who yeah she's good 
who I think in the last few years, um, I think, I think directors and maybe her agent tried to make her into a lead or some kind of, um, some kind of movie star. Um, but that's not really the presence she has on screen. And the other thing is she was often like the night, just the nice girl, mm-hmm. like, Oh, she's that Jenna Malone. She's so harmless. But if you look at stuff like, um, the hunger games movies, mm-hmm. uh, nocturnal animals where she's only in one scene, but it's a really interesting scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then a film like this where there is a vulnerability to her, but there's, she really can embrace a certain cutthroat quality yeah. to, uh, these characters. And, um, and I do think that she, <clears throat> I think she probably gives the best performance in the film, but it might also be because I think her character, despite being a supporting character, I think she might be, I think she might be the most dynamic because we Mm. see so many different aspects of her. Mm -hmm. We see how catty she can be and how manipulative she can be, but we also see how, I mean, just how lonely she is Mm -hmm. to the point that, okay, listeners, again, we're assuming you've seen it. She is, uh, her day job, I guess is a mortician or like a mortician's assistant. Like she kind of, yeah. ma- she makes up dead bodies, dead bodies uh, to make them look good for funerals and stuff. Um, and so, which I do love, I do like the idea of that. Like, I can't think of a better example of you've got your day job and you've got your dream and they do kind of, they might consist of the same mm-hmm. skill set, but used <laughs> in completely different ways. Um, but eventually there's a, a very disturbing, but also I think an extremely sad scene where she starts like feeling up and making out with a corpse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could see people thinking it was funny because it's just so absurd and it's just not a thing you see in polite society. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I love that scene. I think her performance in it like that requires a lot of commitment on the part of, of an actress yeah. and she commits fully mm-hmm. and, if it were oddly enough, if her perform, if she was holding back, I would feel bad for her as an actress hmm. um, because I would get the feeling that she's uncomfortable, but by committing completely, I'm just like, this doesn't seem, uh, it doesn't seem exploitative of yeah. her and what she's willing to do as an actress. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then I will also make special mention of Keanu Reeves. Yeah, he's really good in this. Like, <laughs> I feel like I want to see him in more parts like this, where yeah. he's just kind of a, a strange kind guy. of a scumbag. Yeah, he's a scumbag. He's got a little bit of like a mysterious quality to him. Like, who yeah. exactly is this guy, and like, what's he up to? Doesn't the character seem like it wandered in from Mulholland Drive? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. You know. <laughs> um. Yeah, and you never totally know exactly what he's doing or like, yeah, like how he's involved with her and some of the weird things that are happening in the uh, in the hotel. Yeah, yeah, he essentially is a hotel manager. He might be the owner. I don't remember. And so when she comes into town, uh, he runs the hotel where she's staying. And because it's Keanu Reeves, who we are used to seeing in heroic parts for the most part, um, and he's 
he is kind of a comforting presence at this point in any film. It's just like, Hey, Keanu Reeves, I remember him. Mm -hmm. Um, I say, I remember him. He's not a has been by any stretch. Like he's in those John wick movies. Like he seems to exist outside of everything (laughs) and he's just going to keep, going to keep being Keanu Reeves and we're all fine with it. And up until recently that bothered me. And now I kind of love it. (laughs) Um, you know, give it enough time and anything is respectable. I believe there's a line in Chinatown about that. But, um, <laughs> but what I like is that when we see the way there's a world weariness to him as he's talking to this girl and you kind of feel like he will become a resource for her, like a source of comfort after a while, like she, her innocence will kind of melt his heart a little bit and he will be, uh, an ally. Uh, that is not the case. <laughs> partially because she's not the innocent girl. Um, and he is not an innocent man. Again, we don't totally know what he's doing, but we know he is not an ally. He is not a resource. He is, uh, pretty predatory. I would say. Yeah. I think everyone in this world is horrible. (laughs) Yeah. She does seem to have kind of a boyfriend at the beginning and he disappears though. (laughs) Yeah. Um, he is driven out of this world because he's not quite selfish enough. Yeah. Um, well, and he like gives up on yeah. her essentially. Yeah. Cause, uh, which might speak to, to him being a little bit selfish as well. That yeah. like, cause I think he sees that this industry is going to make her a worse person. Yeah. Um, and he could stick around being like, I, someone needs to look out for her, but I think it's ultimately like, Oh, she treated me poorly. Screw that. Yeah, that's kind of what, and, and like he is a, uh, a big theme of this movie is about how people kind of like consume and use, uh, beauty. Yeah. And so he's one, he's in the first scene of the film. That's what he's doing. He's using her for his, yeah. like for his photography. He's not, she's not getting anything out of it really. Um, she's getting an odd portfolio. I'll <laughs> yeah. say that, but like, you know, that it, it seems like one of the reasons he's interested in her is because he's now he's got an attractive model to work with and he knows that she's, you know, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then when she's not interested in him anymore, he disappears, but he's like the, he's, <laughs> we're saying this cause he's the best one in the movie. He's like the best one. <laughs> uh, and it, so it, it, it makes sense that the best one would be gone halfway through. Yeah. Um, and then things get just worse and worse, um, until they, I don't know why I'm being cagey about the ending. We are already assuming people have seen it, but, uh, did you, I have to assume you did not see that ending coming? Nope. Yeah. Um, so Jess, uh, is befriended. We'll p- probably put quotes around that <laughs> is, uh, she winds up being physically in the proximity of other models, uh, who they're able to recognize that there's something about her that they strive to, to create in themselves, but she seems to just naturally have it and they feel very envious of her. Um, and then when they see the power that you're talking about, like the power that she's getting where, you know, influential photographers, um, are starting to listen to her and favor her over, uh, these other women. Uh, and then they eventually decide that here's how they're going to fix it. Here's how they're going to take care of business is they're going to murder her and eat her. <laughs> and they do 
That's not merely a decision they make. And then someone says, Hey, you know what? Maybe that's ridiculous. No, they do it. Mm -hmm. The eating is not immediately clear. Yeah. They do kill her with a sword. Mm -hmm. Right. I think so. Among other things. Yeah. Uh, and then it's not until, uh, the next scene. I think, I think it's hinted at and only when someone throws up an eyeball that do you realize like, Oh yeah. Nicholas winning ref and you're a, you're insane. (laughs) Um, but yeah, and that's when it becomes, you know, uh, a few weeks ago you were on and we were talking about mother Mm -hmm. and I feel like once a character literally consumes another one and throws up an eyeball, that's when we are dipping pretty heavily into, uh, allegory. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's, and this speaks to something that I normally would not like is that type of heavy handedness. But somehow with this film, mm-hmm. I absolutely adore it. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Yeah. But and it's, it's, well, I think the film earns it. That's one of the things yeah. like, I think throughout their building towards that and that you can see that these other girls want to get her and, yeah. and like have what she has. And even, uh, there's this, there's a scene early on where she cuts her hand in a bathroom. Yeah. And when one of the other models sees the blood, like, yeah, tries to drink it basically. Yeah. There's definitely a vampiric quality to the, to the whole film, which mm-hmm. makes sense. The idea of like vampires consume other people so that they can not merely live, but a big part of the vampire mythos is they do it not simply to have eternal life, but also to be vibrant and strong and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's a nice, there's a lot of foreshadowing in the movie, I guess, when yeah. you look at the opening shot and then something like that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, but I will say that right before the scene before there's a really extended, uh, modeling sequence, which is going to be sort of El Fanning's big break. And then afterwards she's clearly riding high and she gives this monologue that I, that I do love. I don't really like the writing of the film, but I do love that monologue because it does speak to, it speaks to a, a, a definite pride, but it's, it's a pride that I feel like I can understand, hmm. um, in my own way, where among the things that she says, she says, I know what I look like. Women would kill to look like this. Women carve and stuff, praying uh, that one day they'll look like me. And, you know, on one hand, you can look at that and condemn it. And I think I probably would as well. But there's something, you know, one of my, uh, one of my many uh, character flaws is that I am deeply envious of other people who are what I so badly want to be. Um, or they can do something I want to do. It's not often possessions. Like they have something I want. Mm. It's not, it's not usually that it usually has to do with abilities. Hmm. Um, you know who they are, uh, mm-hmm. and who I, uh, wish, uh, that I could be. Um, but a, a, an even darker flip side of that is that when you are an envious person, the, like the height and where I'm talking very much about like sinful instincts here, but the absolute height, like an, uh, like an ecstatic feeling is when you are envied, when you find out that somebody, especially if it's somebody that you envy for other things, when that person says, Oh, I wish I had this. And you think like, wow, 
They wish that, you know, and in this moment, that is what she's talking about. It's not merely look how popular I am. It's also a deep awareness of where she stands. And for Mm -hmm. a while she was on the outside and now she's not merely on the inside, but people want to be her. And what's more is they will have to make such an effort to come close to what she naturally is. Yeah. And you know, it is a, it is a difficult monologue to, to hear. Um, and I think Elle Fanning pulls it off very well because underneath it, I see a lot of sadness that in, in her saying these pretty terrible things that she finally feels some type of validation. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's a sadness there and I think it's meant to be, I'm trying to think if I'm bringing something to it. No, I think so. I think we're meant to feel like she has, uh, that that's one of the first signals that she's kind of going down this path of, of destroying herself um, because of this way that people tell her to think about herself. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it is, it is self-worth based very much on what other people think of you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, admittedly that's probably where a lot of people get our self-worth from. It could be any number of things. It could be, I'm not getting jobs and then, Oh, I got a job. And so even if somebody doesn't say, hey, we love you, we think you're great, just the fact of getting that job means they accept you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, or getting compliments or whatever it is. And so, um, but it also, you know, it's uh, it's one of the reasons I love the Riddler so much is that he gets his validation from other people. That's why he leaves those riddles, so that if somebody can't figure it out, they kind of have to admit the Riddler outsmarted me. Um, and there's a, there's a trailer. They, when Arkham city came out, they did like sort of character based trailers mm-hmm. and, um, and the Riddler has this very, the Riddler as voiced by friend of the show, Wally Wingert. Hey, um, he has this very telling line that I feel like kind of fits here. The companion film is not the Riddler, uh, <laughs> who, as it turns out is not a film. Um, uh, but he has this line where he says, uh, he says, like find my challenges and when you fail to solve them and lie blubbering like a child on the floor, you will know that the Riddler is better than you. <laughs> and it's like, and it's delivered with a lot of intensity and you just feel like, wow, that's on one hand, it's like, wow, that's a, that's quite a villain. On the other hand, it's like, this is uh, emotionally disturbing <laughs> that a character is willing to go this far to show that he is better than mm-hmm. you. And I think in this moment, um, and there's a sadness there. Like in that moment, I kind of want to hug the Riddler and say like, <laughs> you're already good enough, man. It's fine. Uh, and in this, in this moment with Jess, I do, I feel like in that moment, I, as much as I condemn what she is saying, her reason for saying it makes me want to just hug her and say, you're good enough now. Hmm. It's fine. And, you know, I would never have expected to feel that way about any Nicholas winning Ruffin character. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, his, his films are all sharp edges. You don't want to hug those. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I've kind of delved into the theme a little bit, but I don't want to do that, uh, before mentioning, and uh, maybe the last aspect that, that really hits me. I do love the music. Um, I've been a fan hmm. of Cliff Martinez for a while. Um, he, I think I first noticed him, he'd been working before that, but I think I first noticed him when he did the music for traffic. But since then he did oh, okay. a wonderful score for narc. Mm. He's worked with uh, Nicholas winning Refn before. Okay. Um, it could be reductive to say this, but I do think that he's, he's a guy that 
use a lot of synthesizer and, and just kind of creates tones. One could look at it that way uh, as opposed to more notable movie music by like a John Williams or something like that. But he does have specific melodies and specific themes. Um, but uh, his, his music is often not intrusive. It's very atmospheric. In The Neon Demon, I'm not sure if I would say it's intrusive, but it definitely is not meant to be in the background. It is right there, front and center. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, certainly with like the main theme, there is a definite 80s quality to that as yeah. well. Um, and I absolutely adore it. Did, mm -hmm. you, did you like the... Did you respond to the music? I feel like I did, you're more yeah. of a music guy than I am. Um, yeah, sometimes. Although, a lot of times I don't notice a movie score. Um, but I do... I'm trying to remember back now, because I've only seen it once. And I'm trying to remember if in the, I, I do think afterwards I came out liking that soundtrack yeah. a lot. Um, and I'm starting to hear, uh, I'm starting to see more movies now and, and Blade Runner again, having just seen it was another one where this is the case where the, the music almost becomes, uh, part of the, part of the atmosphere of the world rather mm -hmm. than something kind of on top of it. Yeah. In Blade Runner specifically, there are times when you can't tell if some of these tones are actually part of this sci-fi world, like something going yeah. on, you know, the, these ships all make really loud noise, or ships or cars or whatever they are. Yeah. Make uh, really loud noises. So like um, the, the soundtrack, the, the score almost feels like, like this electric pulse that could actually be emanating from something. Right. And so the idea of kind of incorporating the sound in as if it is just kind of part of the world, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's that's kind of an interesting thing that's been happening a little bit more recently in film. And this is a this is one where that is kind of the case. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're not meant to believe that there are really loud tones going in the background through a lot right. of this, but uh, it, it does kind of like build the environment almost without. In a different way than music generally does for a film. Yeah, I do. You know, so often I feel like a, a score, this is not a negative thing. It's the nature of movie music. So often I feel like the score is informed by the action. But every once in a while you'll find score that is meant to inform the action and meant to inform how we take things. So one of the things that I really liked about that movie, The Informant, um, where uh, I think it's, I think Marvin Hamlish does the really? does the music and hmm. the music sounds very much like the sting yeah even though this story while it is a comedy but it's all about this guy who's like going undercover to like uh, help the government with uh, like uncover a price fixing racket mm -hmm. and so and then you have this kind of ragtime music and it's like this doesn't fit at all and it's like <laughs> well Steven Soderbergh is not a haphazard director. Yeah. So why did he incorporate this? Well, probably because he wants us to incorporate this, the tone of this music into the proceedings and just see how kind of silly it all is. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I feel like the, the music and the neon demon, uh, it, it sets the tone and I think it also kind of dictates the tone. Yeah. Um, and in many ways it makes perfect sense why Nicholas winning Refn would would gravitate towards a composer like Cliff Martinez because there, there in the past has been a, a starkness to his, to his music that, and I would say to go back to this term, there's a, a, a real deliberate quality to the mm. way he makes music. Um, so, uh, so I will, uh, talk about theme a little bit. Um, there's a character played by Alessandro Nivola, who's a, an underrated actor and that I always enjoy seeing in, in films. Um, and he says a very 
I led, I led my review off with this because it's a very obvious line, but you know, it can be telling where he says, beauty isn't everything. It's the only thing. And, uh, now on one hand, I want to, you kind of want to say like, you're saying the same thing, jerk. You're just trying to make yourself sound a little bit, you know, are you, you're trying to make yourself sound more vapid actually, which is an achievement. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a, a thing that, um, that I think is true in the sense that, um, that the surface is what is important. Um, there's a, you know, that old, uh, Billy Crystal character, I think his name is Fernando. Um, <laughs> and he would say, you look marvelous, uh, okay. on SNL. Yeah. And he had like, it was just like this recurring character and he had, uh, a foreign accent. I don't even remember exactly what it is. Yeah. And so he would have people come over and he would say, you look marvelous. Like that's that kind of thing. But, uh, at one point, and he always has a guest. And so I remember there was one where he's sitting there. He goes, he says, hello, everybody. I don't have a guest. It's me. I'm all alone. He goes, I don't, he goes, I don't feel marvelous. I look marvelous, but I don't feel marvelous. He goes, <laughs> but that's all right, because it's always better to look good than to feel good. Um, and, uh, and then I was actually talking with a friend today. I went to church with a uh, with friend of the show, Tyler Stracely. And, uh, and, Tyler is a good looking sword and in good, uh, in good shape. Uh, and so he and I were, uh, talking about look versus feel maybe because I was, uh, I had this episode in mind and, uh, we made a joke about how, uh, I think he was saying like, do you think anyone will, will, cause he wasn't feeling very well. It's, do you think anyone will notice? I'm like, I, I don't think so. I think you look hale and hearty. And he goes, yeah, I guess that's all that matters. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I do think that, um, even people that know better, even the, even people that understand that, yes, but you know, it, as cliche as it sounds, it's what, it's what, it, it's what's in your heart. It's what's underneath. Um, but I think all of us, uh, even those that acknowledge that, um, would say, yeah, but <laughs> at the same time, and then we, we, we're not, we don't gravitate towards ugliness. We don't gravitate toward, you know, and being a guy who I don't have a very high opinion of my own physicality. I'm very aware of like the spare tire I've got going. And, um, and it's to the point that, uh, I don't know if I've said this on the show, but in the spirit of vulnerability, um, I don't like crying in front of people. Not that I cry very often anyway, but I don't like crying in front of people. Here's why. Ugh, here's what I'm about to say. Nobody wants to see a fat man cry. That's literally a thing I have thought to myself and I keep myself from really, again, I'm not much of a weeper anyway, but, uh, if there's ever a moment where I'm with more than two people, um, and we're having a, a discussion and, and I start to get emotional, I do, that is a thought that comes into my mind. And it's like, literally, if we're having this conversation, then it's all about what's happening on the inside and we're connecting yeah. on that level. But mm -hmm. I also had this thought, it's like, nobody wants to, see, nobody wants to see a fat man cry. I don't know why I think that. And I don't know where I came up with that. Hmm. Uh, I think there is a, some sentiment in a Kevin Smith movie about that. I don't know why I would ever internalize that. Um, <laughs> probably not the best one to take life lessons from. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so, I think even, even, and even Christians, um, who should know better, 
because of verses we'll be quoting in a moment. Um, I think we all just use the external, if nothing else, then like as a shorthand, like, okay, I see how somebody is dressing. I see the way they carry themselves. I see choices that they make like with their hair or whatever it is. And I have a pretty good idea of who they are. Even if it's, oh, this person uses too much makeup. They're clearly trying so hard to look a certain way. Don't Mm -hmm. they realize that man looks at the, that God looks at the heart and so we even we will even condemn people for looking too beautiful or trying too hard or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so I did want to bring up uh, another movie that is considered horror, but somehow even the fact that it's considered horror is insulting, um, <laughs> which is Todd Browning's 1932 film Freaks, which uh, destroyed his career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He had made Dracula. Yeah, the year previously. The year pre, he could do whatever he wanted. Well, turns out Todd Browning had some experience in the circus, and had had known a number of, for lack of a better term, freaks. Uh, had tremendous affection for them, and felt like you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a movie that tells their story, and I what I will do is I will use the movie the way people you know, the way a carnival barker does, I'll be like, come in and see actual genuine freaks. And then once people are in there, well, now I can show them the humanity of of these people that they are so eager to dehumanize. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, people weren't up for that. Uh, turns out people were, and I guess understandably so anytime you see somebody who is, who, uh, is, is infirmed in some way, they could be very sick or especially if it is manifesting itself in an, in a, an overtly outward way. Yeah. You know, um, there's the, I don't know why I remember this guy's name, but there's a performer named Johnny Eck, uh, who essentially doesn't have a lower half to him. Hmm. Um, maybe just legs. I'm not sure, but it definitely, it looks like he, it looks like there's nothing from the waist down, but I also mm-hmm. feel like, well, there's gotta be some way that he is alive, alive, which yeah. means he does need to, certain get rid of waste how do you do that um but uh and so he just kind of walks on his arms and it's jarring to see that um but you know and and todd browning did cast it with actual uh disabled people or freaks i'm sorry to put it that way but that's i can't i don't know what the actual term would be Mm -hmm. um and he allows them first off we get brought into their community and we see that they love each other and that they protect each other Mm -hmm. um because they know how the rest of the world sees them yeah uh and a big part of the story is that there's a there's this this very attractive woman who i believe is called cleopatra in the film Mm -hmm. she's very attractive and she she befriends the strong man so we've got a beautiful woman and a masculine man and they team up and they hear that like one of the little people whose name is Hans, they hear that he has a great deal of money. So she starts to befriend him and then get romantic with him with the, and then like, Oh, we'll get married. And then I'm go- Then he will die and I will get his money. And when, and she's actually uh, romantically associated with the strong man. So that's the plan. Uh, and, you know, and that's honestly like that is a that is a, a storyline out of any number of films. But the fact that she, it's arguable whether she would attempt this with a 
quote unquote normal person. I think she, she has a hard time looking at, even though she, she tours with them. I think she has a hard time looking at the freaks as actual people, even when they, they're reluctant to bring her into, into their community. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one of the big, uh, the big scene of the film is they say, we accept her. She's one of us. Google gobble. Um, (laughs) that part's a little unnerving, but, um, why do they say that? I don't know. Uh, I would say, Hey guys, maybe don't steer right into the, uh, the otherworldly nature (laughs) of, of what people think you are. But the scene where they say that they all say together, like Google gobble, we accept her one of us. Mm -hmm. And it is disturbing to see all of these people, all these, you know, malformed people saying this. And she is horrified, even though what they're literally saying is we accepting, we, we want you to be a part of this, but, what they're saying is you're one of us and she does not want to be one of them, even if, and so she like runs away screaming, even though it goes counter to her scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, uh, and then eventually it is, uh, reveal her, her plan is, is revealed. And then the freaks, uh, take care of business. What was that? Then they eat her, right? <laughs> not quite. Uh, <laughs> they turn her into, they alter her and turn her into like this duck woman. And it's very disturbing. Um, and it reminded me, I actually watched it earlier today in oh. uh, preparation for this, that uh, twilight zone episode mm. with the masks Okay, where yeah. the dying father makes his, uh, chill, his terrible children wear these horrible masks that then, uh, uh, transform their faces so that they finally look on the outside, how they are on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I'm not necessarily a big fan of the fact that the, uh, that this community of freaks, uh, get physically violent with this woman. Um, it's hard to watch the film and not think she deserves it. Um, you know, I I don't like to use the word karma, but it's that kind of thing, which is she saw these people as not real people. She saw them as victims and decided she's going to victimize them and that they are lesser than her because she's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they make her one of them, Hmm. uh, in a way that she did not, want and in a way that reflects who she is on the inside. Yeah. Um, and it is admittedly when we see what she is reduced to, that is also a disturbing image. Yeah. Um, seeing a person reduced kind of to, uh, anim- an animalistic thing. Um, speaking of Kevin Smith, I did watch that movie Tusk, which is ridiculous, but kind of amazing in certain ways. Michael Parks, especially, mm. uh, who recently passed away. But um, in it, he turns a character like through extensive surgeries, he turns a person into a walrus and it is very disturbing. Um, And uh, so, yeah, that that gets to me. But um, I understand why audiences rejected the film at the time, Mm -hmm. but I think it is a timeless message and it's still impactful because you don't see we still avoid this stuff. We still avoid seeing people that are malformed, uh, or disabled, um, because it's like, Oh, I, it makes us uncomfortable. And it's just in many ways, it's not aesthetically pleasing. Right. And we just don't know how to react. So we'd rather just sweep it under the carpet and act like these people don't exist. Um, yeah, it's still shocking to see stuff like that in movies. Even nowadays, like there's the uh, guy with the, the disfigured face in, uh, uh, oh, oh, um, the, I can't think of under the, the skin, right now. under the skin. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same, like 
that has the same kind of effect now that freaks did then where you, yeah. when you see that guy, you're kind of taken aback a little bit and it does in a, in the same way, try and get you to see some of the humanity of this guy. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a startling image. Yeah. And it's, uh, and I wouldn't say that I don't think I would condemn a person's natural, like, Oh, you know, it is natural. Like anytime we see something that is outside our experience, um, we will react like that. But then the question is, what do you do then? Um, and it's one of the things that I love about under the skin is just how, yes, the Scarlett Johansson's character does take pity on him because of his situation. Mm -hmm. But I like that. He's just kind of a regular guy, albeit probably a little bit sad. Um, and, and then at some point, like every other character, he is eventually like scrambling around naked, right? Cause he's trying to get away, mm-hmm. uh, which makes him even more vulnerable, but oddly enough, and we're not talking about under the skin, but oddly enough, that scene, I really appreciated because you, you focus so much on like his face and it's like, Oh no, he's just a regular, you know, he has a completely normal body. He is. And, and the fact that he's naked, he's like, he is a man. He looks the same everywhere else. We're so focused on that thing. It was a nice reminder that he actually is a, is a person. Hmm. Um, and I, and I really applaud that actor for being willing to be that yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, and then, and thankfully afterwards, like he, he was invited to do a number of interviews and stuff where he talked about his condition. And I, I was very happy with that story, but, um, but yeah. And so this idea of beauty isn't everything. It's the only thing we condemn that idea, but I do think that it's something that we absolutely believe in, mm-hmm. um, whether we want to or not. And so I do have a few verses here that I wanted to say, and again, I'll be telling you stuff that you already know, but it never hurts to be reminded. First Peter three verses three through, uh, and four, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Uh, I do love, I love that phrasing, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, I don't know the idea because so uh, you and I are in a, in a, a men's Bible study and we just finished going through Ecclesiastes and a big theme that we were talking about in there is focusing on the eternal, focusing on what is to use this term unfading. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it talks about this is, this is another kind of beauty and it is an unfading one. First uh, Samuel 16 verse seven, do not consider his appearance uh, or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, now that is part of a larger section there when it talks about don't look at his appearance. Um, you know, it is referencing something specific, but what I like about it is like, in this case, it's Look at his, oh, he, he's a good looking guy and he's very tall. Oh, we, we, this is a guy we want to lead us. And it says like, no, don't look at that. That might actually fool you. Mm-hmm. You should not think in those terms. You should, you know, God sees his heart and his heart does not qualify him to be a leader or a, or a high priest or anything like that. Uh, and speaking of Ecclesiastes, there's Ecclesiastes three verses nine through 11. What do workers gain from their toil? 
I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Um, the idea of what do workers gain from their toil, um, I'm kind of reminded of this this line from the Neon Demon where Jess talks about all the all the work that, uh, that women do to achieve what she has naturally. Um, and that there, and of course, it being Ecclesiastes, it is talking about a certain fruitlessness to that. But I also like this idea that he has made everything beautiful in its time, and then immediately it start it starts talking about eternity, um, and that uh, any number of us um, might despair over what we look like, whether it be our physical appearance or just our life, how we come across outwardly. Um, we might despair over that and saying like, oh, it's not what we want it to be. Um, but, uh, this says like event, if you keep your eye on the eternal, then you will be made beautiful. And I, and I'm reluctant to say that because even then it's like, Oh, so does that mean like, I'm going to be like super hot. It might not be that it just might, you know, I think God has a different exp a different definition of beauty and we will be made beautiful eventually according to God's standard. Mm hmm. Uh, Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. I'll throw that to you. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. All right. So now when we talk about the flesh, uh, savvy Christians know that we're not literally talking about human skin, um, but uh, just talking about thinking only in the material and, and ourselves um, and kind of our, our baser instincts. But it doesn't hurt to think in, the, think in terms of actual flesh and what we consider beautiful, what we consider attractive, and just focusing only on that. And if we live for that, then we are, first off, we're going to, we can't help but to go back to that term, we can't help but be consumed by ourselves because we're so obsessed with how people see us. Um, and we're not going to be paying attention to what God actually wants for us. Um, and there's a line in here that I, that I like from Jess where she says, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't write. No real talent. But I'm pretty, and I can make money off pretty, and it's a. I feel. I feel like that is also kind of a, a heartbreaking line. It shows tremendous yeah. self awareness, right, and a fair amount of self condemnation. Mm -hmm. um, and while I think it is perfectly fine to recognize what you can't do and what you can, um, I think that's. I think we all have to do that eventually and make our peace with it. Um, but at the same time, I think that when she, you know, when someone says, "I can't do this or this or this." And then they say, no real talent. There's a lot of self-loathing in that say, in that statement. Like, yeah. undoubtedly, you have talents in other areas, but she is content to simply say, like, well, I am this. And that's, it's not even a thing I'm doing. I just am this, and that's, that's what I'll do. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not condemning people in the modeling industry, but again, it's, uh, it's just uh, the, the mindset of certain characters uh, in the film, but then people outside of it. Um, 
And so I did want to end with this passage. It is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So I did want to talk about this eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Uh, there is a moment in the Neon Demon, and we talked about it already, when Jess is feeling glorified, and is it's towards the end, and she's just reveling in that, and in that revelry, she exposes, um, exposes just, I don't think she feels sad, but I think there's an inherent sadness underneath, like we were saying before. And so as she's reveling in this type of glory, um, we see the sadness underneath and the emptiness underneath. Um, and so in talking about what we're talking about here, um, you know, maybe you at home, chances are you're not someone who says like, I only like beautiful things. You know, <laughs> very few people say that. I, I haven't met that person yet. Um, but what I will say is you probably are focused on, maybe not focused exclusively, but you're probably very aware of your own physical or just outward shortcomings. It could be your job. You know, it could be, I'm not far enough along. I'm not where I want to be. Um, it could be finances or it could be your physicality and just say like, I'm not what I want to be. And it's okay to acknowledge that. And it can even be okay to work to being that thing. As long as you don't get your identity so wrapped up in it that it quite literally consumes you. Hmm. Um, you know, if you, if we focus on what is eternal, then Yes, we will. We will still try to improve ourselves here, but we also will not be in despair when, you know, if or when we come up short. So anyway, I uh, just wanted to uh, sum up with that. And I think we'll go ahead and, and end uh, next week. I don't remember what I don't know exactly what order we're going in. So I don't know what we're talking about next week, but I'll announce it on the Facebook page and on Twitter. Uh, in the meantime, you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can email Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. You're always welcome to leave a comment on this episode at the at more than one lesson.com. I keep saying that. Uh, more than lesson.com. Um, <laughs> you can like, like us on Facebook and do check out Faith Life TV. And I think that is about it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>